Hey everybody, welcome to your first official post-quarantine, pre-apocalypse um, Asian American history class. Uh, so I think what I'm going to end up doing is, is just doing these, these podcasts. Uh, it seems to be the most convenient way. It should, once everything loads, it should be able to go through iTunes, Spotify, um, and this Anchor um, program, which is the one that I'm using to record it, um, you should be able to access those on uh, podcast apps for all of those, as well as I will put a um, a file down. Um, it'll be an MP4, so it'll it'll read as a video, um, so you can just download it right off your computer. Um, these are just essentially these are the narrative parts of the lectures. The slides are going up as well, and you can either listen to it and look at the slides, which is what I'd recommend, or if you're you know unable to do that, um, you can just listen to the listen to the lectures themselves. I I apologize. I'm this is not optimal. This is not how I'd I'd want to teach a class. Um, but uh, you know, coronavirus um, is is doing its thing, so we're. We're, this is how we're going to do it. Um, okay, enough of that. Let's start this lecture. Okay, let's jump into this. By the way, this is like the fourth time I've tried to start um, the intro for this, and I keep deleting it, and this is a huge pain in the ass, and I wish I was back in the class because then I could just mumble my way through it and go ahead. Um, but since I'm recording, let's go ahead and do this uh at least semi-properly. Why are we looking at Hawaii? Um, we're going to be looking at Hawaiian poli politics in Hawaii from World War II to statehood. And uh, for this particular class, it's important. One, we're in Hawaii. Um, two, uh, even though Hawaii is a, a very small state, um, so much of the Asian population within the United States, um, especially at that point in, um, in history, resided in Hawaii. Um, and three, um, Hawaii, uh, well, Hawaii is the only state, uh, it was the only non-white majority state. Uh, I think California is almost there. And Hawaii is the only state where there is an Asian American population um, that controlled local politics. Um, and it largely still is, is a major, uh, if not the major um, component um, in local voting demographics. Uh, and that's, that's incredibly unusual. It, it changes the story of Asian America. If Asian America is only California, then it's a minority story. If Asian America includes Hawaii, then it, it changes. It becomes this other story as well. Um, what happens to visions of our understandings of Asian American um, when you analyze Hawaii, particularly this period where the Japanese and Hawaii become um, dominant in local politics. I should add, when you hear the little uh, clingy sound right after this, that means to turn, um, or to not turn the page, um, to switch over to the next slide. So when you look at Hawaii, um, we had talked about some things last time when we talked about building community, that Hawaii is, we are seeing the development of this local identity and a local community um, that is heavily Asian, um, especially Japanese, and also heavily Hawaiian, um, and then also this sort of American element to it. Um, that is the generation, that 1930s generation, 
Um, that's the 442nd guys. Um, that's uh, you know non-Japanese veterans that that are coming back from the war after the war. Um, it's pretty widespread in Hawaii, um, and that's uh, it's really important to understand that. Um, one of the things that is being created is a very sort of specific culture and that that culture, um, politics often is associated with culture um, and we'll see that particular culture grab onto Democratic Party politics and labor politics very, very strongly um, in the post-war era. Now, the other thing that's going into this is before the war, um, there had been labor activism in Hawaii. Um, and it's because so much of the labor is Asian, a lot of the labor activism had been Asian as well. We had um, the 1908 Japanese strike. We have the 1920 Japanese and Filipinos striking together, although through separate, uh, separate groups, um, but striking in conjunction with each other. We have the Hanapepe, um, the strike on Kauai in 1922, or 24, I'm bad with numbers, um, that leads to the, the Hanapepe massacre. Um, and that's all Filipino. Um, and then we have these labor strikes leading right up to the war with like the Hilo Massacre, et cetera, where we finally start to see um, actual unions forming that are multi-ethnic unions. Um, and then we hit World War II. And there's, a, there's not a complete stop of all labor organizing during that era, but there's definitely no striking during that era, um, partly because of the war and partly because we're under martial law. So... That's all leading up to 1945. So from 1945 onwards, the labor unions, once freed from the war, um, we will see the labor unions move and get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. They are going to be organized heavily by the ILWU, the International Longshoremen's um, and Warehousemen's Union. Um, and they're going to have a major strike in 1945. Um, a sugar strike there that's, that's incredibly successful. Um, there's going to be repeated efforts to just break the strike, uh, but they have the support of the longshoremen. Um, so the, the laborers and the longshoremen are essentially um, acting in support of each other. In 1949, there's going to be a longshoremen strike. Um, the longshoremen strike is going to be a huge one because look, at, look around your, I'm assuming if you're like me, you're stuck someplace in a bedroom or in a living room, look around all your stuff. How much of that stuff was brought in? Look at the wood. Look at the gypsum board. Like, look at all the stuff that built the, the house or apartment. Like, unless you're in, all in CMU, everything's brought in. Um, if the longshoremen go on strike, then you actually need to panic and go get toilet paper. Um, but they go on strike for a hundred and something days. Um, they shut Hawaii down. They only, they only allow medicine and food through. And the public largely supports them because the LWU did such a good job of making sure that there was support um, for, the, for the strike um, and making sure everyone understood that they're acting together, that this was, it was largely seen as like the local culture um, and all these different groups pushing back against the oligarchy. Um, and at one point, they... They, they do what they always did. They're like, oh, we'll use ethnicity to split up the strikes. So they went and got, um, they went to the Philippines and the Philippines are, you know, they just went through World War II and they, they took the brunt end of it in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, at the end, the Japanese go through and, and massacre something like, I think it's like 50,000 people in, in Manila. Um, and there, there wasn't any war aim to it. It was just, 
it was just anger over losing the war. Um, and so there are a lot of Filipinos looking for work. Um, and so they bring, uh, they bring a couple of shiploads of Filipino laborers to break the strike, um, except the, the sailors um, aboard the ship all belong to the ILWU. And they go and organize the Filipino, a bunch of the Filipino laborers so that when they come off the ship, they all have union cards. And instead of going to the plantations to go and pick sugar, they all walk onto the picket lines and join the strike. Um, it's just insane. Um, Oh, crap. You know what? That's the, that's the wrong strike. That was the earlier sugar strike. I'm recording these. I should be able to go back and redo them. I'm not gonna. Um, but this, it just, there's just this period of, there's some losses. There's a, a pineapple strike on Lanai where they basically take it badly. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to do on Lanai because the entire island is owned by the, the, sugar, or the uh, pineapple company. Um, but there's a lot of success in these strikes. There's a couple of things that happen there um, that indicate that there's definitely, you know, still factions of, of the Democratic Party, they're anti-union. Um, Frank Fossey comes in, he, he's from like New Jersey or something. I mean, he comes in after the war and during the Longshoreman strike, he, he tries to get this meeting together with all the, the Nisei vets, all the 442nd guys, the intelligence guys. Um, and it's, you organize them. He doesn't tell them what it's for. It's like, oh, just come to this meeting. And they're all thinking, um, he, he's basically saying like, you know, I'm a veteran that's involved in the Democratic Party. Your veterans that are involved in the Democratic Party. Come on down to this meeting. They're all thinking that he's going to try and organize a big, um, like some, something for them to, to organize fundraising for the strikers. Because these guys are all from working class families. Their families are all in the ILWU. A lot of them are now in the ILWU. Um, because they're working, you know, down at the docks, etc. And Fossey says at the meeting, he says, look, you guys are heroes. If you go out and you guys scab, if you guys go out and basically unload all the ships and break the, um, break the strike, no one will say anything um, because you're the 442nd. Like, no one can complain about you guys doing this stuff. And they're all super pissed, and a bunch of them, would, they would hold that grudge against Fossey until they died. Um, there's a lot of like, if you look at Hawaiian politics, Frank Fossey, oh yeah, he did a lot of sketchy stuff. Brought us the bus, big fan of the bus, but other than that, kind of a jackass. Um, so yeah, by this point, the ILWU, the Longshoremen's Union, is a major part of the Democratic Party. Um, because they're able to act together, they're able to strike together. And then you have, as the leader of the Democratic Party at this point, even though the membership is mostly Asian um, and Hawaiian, uh, but still like primarily Asian, um, primarily Japanese, the leader at this point is a Haole guy, is John Burns, um, who's uh, um, he's from Montana, but he grew up, he, he was born in, in Montana, but he grew up in Kalihi. So he's essentially... One of, the, one of the few Haole guys um, that gets along well with, with the local people down in Honolulu. Um, and he, during the war, he was the guy who was in charge of um, the police department, um, the police department's special unit that was kind of keeping an eye on the Japanese. Um, and because he's from Kalihi, um, because he has all these ties with the Japanese community, he was able to, to work with them to make sure that if anything was going on, the police would know about it, but also to make sure that the community 
um, trusted that the person who's in charge of looking, like looking for a Japanese saboteurs, etc., um, doesn't hate the Japanese. They they know that John Burns isn't, you know, an out and out bigot. Um, so they trust him enough to work with him. Um, and after the war, he's going to he's going to quit the police force, and he's going to become a leader um, within the Democratic Party. It's going to take a lot of these younger uh, Japanese American, primarily Japanese American. Um, veterans, bring them under his wing, um, and he's going to kind of teach them the ins and, out of po- ins and outs of politics. And that's going to be that generation of Ariyoshi, um, Kai- not Kaitama, Ariyoshi, um, dude, what is the other one? Ariyoshi, um, Inoue, Akaka, like that generation of politicians um, that's just sort of passed just passing now or has just passed. So up until 1950, the Democrats really couldn't put much vote out there. Um, a lot of the Hawaiians had split and gone to Kuhio. The plantations were able to control most of the rural elections. Um, and so everybody, like everyone who could vote, essentially voted Republican. And then the conflicts were within the Republican Party. 1950, we started seeing the Democrats getting together, putting together a very sort of left-wing progressive um, platform. Uh, this is when they start stealing a lot. Of, like the Communist Party had actually been growing stronger in Hawaii. Um, and in 1950, between that and a bunch of the communist leaders being arrested, um, a lot of people who previously had gone sort of supported the communists because they're the only ones who supported the workers. Now that the Democratic Party has this young left coalition within it, um, they're moving over to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party becomes the party of the unions um, and it becomes a party of what we now call sort of progressive politics in 1950. They lose the 1950 election. 1952, they're building, but 1954, they crush. Democrats have never had control of any part of the legislature in Hawaii. Um, the only time the Republicans had been in control was the first legislature, which was run by the Home Rule Party. But in 1954, they crush. Um, they win the, the election by a landslide. Um, Burns gets in as a delegate. The Republicans still hold the appointed governorship, but the Democratic Party essentially controls the legislature, and they're able to push through a bunch of legislation that had been held up by the Republicans previously. So the 1954 legislature, the problem is they are able to pass legis- all sorts of things. They pass um, better schools, uh, progressive tax, land reforms. I mean, the way the plantations didn't pay, most of the taxes in Hawaii were, were they were um, property taxes. But the way the plantations were able to control everything, um, one of the things that they did was they told the, the territory how much the land that they owned was worth so that the territory would just kind of tax them based on that. And if they said this land was worth a penny an acre, then they're barely even taxed at all. Um, the other thing is that they have a lot of, a lot of the land that plantations and, and other big holders had was not, um, they didn't own it. They're, it was state land, or territorial lands that they're leasing. Um, so they didn't pay much on that. Um, there's also, uh, they're pushing a lot of environmental regulations. Um, there were almost no work safety regulations. Most of the things that, that happened in terms of work safety were happening because the unions were forcing them directly onto the companies. Uh, but at this point now, we're seeing work, worker safety regulations. We're seeing the push for like uh, 40 hour weeks, insurance, um, 
everyone complains about OSHA when you're on a job site, but no one complains about OSHA when something falls down and your head doesn't get broken in because you're wearing a hard helmet. Um, it's important to have those things. It's important to have work safety regulations or else uh, everything will be done as quickly and cheaply as possible. As, and that, that means human life is cheap. Um, and the, the last part is health insurance for workers. Um, instead of having a company doctor that you would go to that works for the company and who's interested is often just to get you back working as quickly as possible rather than its interest is to make sure that you are um, well enough to work. Um, having health insurance in this case means you could go to whatever, um, you could go off the plantation essentially, you, you could go to different doctors. Um, and that was really, these are all huge things for that 1954 legislature. Um, and they, they, all, they all got smashed. None of that goes through um, because they're vetoed. The, the governor is a Republican. Um, it's still a, it is still very much um, an illusion of democracy rather than democracy. The legislature has no power. The voters have no power because the judicial branch is appointed um, and the executive branch is appointed from Washington, D.C. So you could have this huge Democratic win in Hawaii and it doesn't matter because the governor is Republican. He's appointed by, um, by Eisenhower. Um, and, and Governor King, um, he issues 71 vetoes. He vetoes everything that comes across his desk. Um, there's probably moments where he accidentally vetoed a lunch order just because someone, they put it in the wrong stack. I mean, he was constantly vetoing things. Um, and this was, this is a huge, it was a huge uh, loss. Um, but they, they knew this, they expected this. This was not um, unexpected. Um, They know things are going to get vetoed. Um, they go through and, and, and have, the, have the votes anyway, pass the legislature every, anyway, um, and force King to veto them. The, the reason you do this is because if you, one, if you, if you don't do that, if you are afraid to pass legislature or legislation because it's going to get vetoed, um, it makes you look weak and cowardly, and voters don't like that. Um, this is something that modern legislatures, legislators um, often fail to recognize. Uh, the other thing is it makes it so that the next time the voters go, um, go into the voting booth, they, they remember who stopped the things we wanted, right? In this point, it's King and the Republicans. He stopped the things we wanted. Um, we will continue voting against them. Um, and last, it seems that a lot of them understood that um, seeing the vetoes, Seeing this like imperial veto coming from an unelected governor, an appointed gov governor, um, would really help the push for statehood. Um, while a lot of older Hawaiians were against statehood, um, a lot of the, the, this generation, this sort of local generation, Hawaiians, um, etc., but, but primarily the, the, the Asian, um, the first generation of, of Asians to be able to vote in Hawaii often. Uh, they wanted statehood. Um, statehood allows you to have, allows you to get a seat in the Senate, which is incredibly important. Um, it gives you some electoral votes. Um, it gives you more say in the American system in general, but it definitely gives you more say in um, local politics because we would have an elected governor. Um, one of the things that those vetoes did was it helped galvanize um, people's desire um, for statehood. And it didn't really take that much, 
by 1940, 66% of the population wanted statehood. 1950, 85% of the population wanted statehood. 1959, 95% of the population wanted statehood. Um, if you go through the American education system, you're taught that statehood and becoming a full part of America was like, that's the best case scenario. But then you see it denied every single, every single time it came up. Um, and the reasons used to justify it were usually pretty openly racist, um, that Asians and Hawaiians weren't ready for statehood. Um, that generation had enough of that shit and they, they wanted statehood. Um, older Hawaiians, a lot of older Hawaiians will be in opposition to it, um, in part because, you know, it's, it's going to be one more step away from independence. But for a lot of this younger generation, it was just a matter of the territorial status was so just, it was such a lie. The, the lie of democracy within the territorial status. Um, the dead had enough. They wanted, um, they wanted full participation. And this is, you know, in 1959, they'll get statehood. Um, this is where it's really important that um, during that 1954 election and, and later elections, the Democratic Party is able to get their hands on the, um, the delegate position because the delegate is going to be the person who's in Washington, D.C. pushing for statehood. And that doesn't, they don't, they, a delegate is useless. Um, for the most part, a delegate is useless. A representative is useless. Tell me something Tulsi's done that isn't run for president. Um, tell me something Ed Case has done, period. Um, representatives are useless, but a delegate's even more useless. The one thing they can do is introduce bills and they can make friendships. Um, and Burns, as the delegate, when he goes to Washington, D.C., he takes a bunch of these young 442nd guys um, and some of the military intelligence guys, and he has them go and make friends um, specifically. And this is make friends with the Texans because they had saved the Texans' asses. Um, they make friends with te the Texans uh, and they tell them, hey, you know, we're the 442nd. We saved your, like you or your friends or your cousins or something. Um, and use that as a way to access Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the, the Senate Majority Leader. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson was a beast of a man and apparently an incredibly unpleasant one. Um, he was a big, giant bully, um, which often meant that he, uh, he was successful in getting bills passed through, through the Senate. Um, and this is one of the, one of the things um, that allows him to get statehood, um, is just using those personal connections that they developed based on those guys being the 442nd, um, being 442nd veterans, being 100th Battalion vet veterans, um, and being um, some of them in military intelligence. So 1959, Hawaii gets statehood. And this is, for Asian American history, this is incredibly important because that becomes the first moment. Um, and actually, I mean, still, it's the only time, it's the only place um, where there is a Asian majority state, right? Which means you're going to have an Asian majority voting for senators. You're going to have an Asian majority with an electoral um, vote. And that's, you know, because of, because of that change, um, because of statehood, we've the only Asian senators that have gone in um, for a long time. Most, like a good percentage of the Asians um, that have, yeah until relatively recently, um, that got into the house were from Hawaii. Um, and yeah, they, even though it's, 
you know, Hawaii has a number of different ethnic groups, et cetera. Um, you look at the three of the last six governors have been Jap or have been Asian. Um, there's Ariyoshi, um, Ige, Cayetano. Um, in the Senate, there's Fong, who is actually a Republican, was um, one of the first ones elected. Um, Matsunaga, um, Akaka, who is part Chinese, um, Meizi Hirono, um, Inoue. Um, Hawaii is, is a definite exception to the sort of um, white dominance um, in every single other state, um, except for a handful of southern states right after the Civil War. And that's, you know, that's every time there's any sort of, uh, look, anytime there's any, or any sort of Asian American history of politics, um, one of the first things they go to is Hanoi. That's, it's over and over again. And that doesn't happen without that huge push for statehood. It doesn't happen without um, that group of, you know, including Hanoi, um, grasping power in Hawaii during that 1954 Democratic Revolution. Um, and that's going to, it changes the Asian American story. It's not a minority story in Hawaii. It is a majority story. Um, and that doesn't mean that there, there aren't other things. There isn't an oligarchy, et cetera, that's trying to keep them from holding that power. Um, but it changes things. Um, and that moment of change is really 54 to 59. And, you know, it's even when you look at non-Asian candidates um, in Hawaii, successful non-Asian politicians in Hawaii, um, the, the joke is if you're, if you're getting into politics in Hawaii and you're not Asian, you better marry Asian. Um, and go through and look at these clips. Um, you know, Ed Case, his wife, and this, this first link, the YouTube, um, the YouTube link that goes to Ed Case's stuff, there is an entire section of Ed Case's YouTube page that is dedicated to his wife making local food. Um, they're super rich. I very strongly doubt that she spends that much time cooking. Um, but it's just this, just this reminder to everybody that like, hey, Ed Case, he's, he's really fucking white. But look, he married Asian. Um, Mufi, like Mufi did that too. Um, Mufi Hanneman, like show up at the, like he would show up at every single one dance. Um, but he also on his, his, his ads, he would always make sure everybody understood that like, hey, Mufi's wife, is Japanese. Um, and then Ed Schatz, um, same thing. Uh, I almost forgot about this one. So I couldn't find this. Um, but Ed Case in like, I don't know, like mid 2000s, he ran this ad and it was the creepiest ad. Um, so it's, it's a, his wife was sitting on a stool looking incredibly uncomfortable, a very tall stool in the middle of a stage. Ed Case is standing off of the stage and like to her left. And then he's talking to an audience, but the camera is panning. But the camera, she is the focal point of the camera, um, the entire ad. And she does not move. She just looks like incredibly uncomfortable and is standing there as a prop for Ed Case as the camera spins around the stage it is the creepiest ad. Um, and I wish I could find it. And if anybody finds me that ad, I will give them some extra credit. And one of the interesting things about, um, you know, Hawaii and this, this, this is all that most of what we're talking about is pre, um, 
migration from the, the kingdom era. Um, it's Japanese um, families, etc., that initially came over, um, but almost all of it before 1924. Um, and then the Filipinos that are allowed to keep coming in later on because they're part of the U.S. empire um, before the Philippines gets um, uh, their independence. But um, after World War II, there's a second um, wave of migration. Uh, migration is allowed to continue after 1960 when they basically get less racist with the migration laws. Um, and so you'll see a second wave of Chinese migrating to Hawaii. Um, a lot of them fleeing the communist revolution um, who had been sometimes in Taiwan and then came over um, or in other places. And there were exceptions that were allowed for people fleeing from, from Mao. Um, there's a smaller but still substantial Korean migration um, often tied to the U.S. military presence in Korea, um, there's like a pretty large um, like Korean, like part Korean population in Hawaii um, whose moms married some military dude and then came over. Um, and then, uh, which has been awesome for food in Hawaii because those moms all opened restaurants and those restaurants were dope. Um, there's a, a small pre-World War II Korean presence in Hawaii, but it definitely grows a lot. Um, and then uh, the Vietnamese population, which grows pretty expansively after the Vietnam War, um, there hadn't been much of a Vietnamese population at all in Hawaii. Um, but they, just like um, the Vietnamese that moved to uh, the mainland U.S., a lot of people fleeing the war um, did end up in Hawaii. So there's these groups, even though they're not part of the local culture um, when they, they come, even the Chinese that come are, are very much Chinese Chinese. They're not local Chinese. Um, because local is understood racially, like there is this racial element to it, um, they are really quickly incorporated into, um, into sort of local identity. Um, it's an it's a easy sort of flow in um, as opposed to sometimes uh, migration into the, you know, California, et cetera, um, until a there are areas that are Asian majority or, or very sort of large Asian pluralities. Um, Koreans moving into to Hawaii will be a, minor, a minority in terms of being Korean, but they'll also be as Asian. They'll be in some ways part of the majority in Hawaii. So one of the groups that doesn't really fit nicely into, into this um, are, are Filipinos because they're both part of the older uh, migration and also um, very much part of the more recent migration. Um, with Filipinos, early on, I mean, from 1910 onwards, there's this huge Filipino presence in Hawaii. There's a huge Filipino presence in labor. Um, you can't have labor, the labor movement in Hawaii without Filipinos because they're such a large part of the labor um, population. However, because Filipinos were not affected by the U.S. Um, migration laws in the early parts of the 20th century, there's continued Filipino migration um, versus the Japanese and Chinese who by the 1920s, there isn't continued migration. It's very, very few people are able to, to migrate um, into the United States um, where Filipinos, because they're part of the U.S. empire, were able to migrate. And this is going to change things. One you don't see as many as part, like a percentage of the population, you don't see as many women and children um, because the migration was primarily aimed at um, young men, like bringing over young men for, for, um, for labor. Uh, so 
there aren't as many Filipino families being formed in Hawaii as with the Japanese, etc. Um, which is not to say that there aren't. I mean, there's, you know, Filipino families um, who have been in Hawaii since 1910, right? Um, but as an overall percentage of the population, more and more um, of the Japanese were local born, were roughly the same amount of the Filipino population were, were Philippine born. So the Filipinos, um, partly because of that, partly because of this sort of anti-immigrant stuff that goes on, even aside from race, the anti-immigrant sentiment, um, the Filipinos will be left out of parts of local culture, arguably until like the 1970s and 80s, um, where anti-Filipino racism will continue because Filipinos were usually more likely to be, um, to be recent migrants than to have been in Hawaii for multiple generations. And you can see, I mean, in the 1980s, you know, there's still a lot of, you still heard a lot of very, very negative derogatory stereotypes about Filipinos just in, in public um, in ways that you kind of still hear about Micronesians now, like the, the latest local, or the latest non-white group to come into Hawaii kind of catching flack. Um, but by the 19, 1970s, 1980s, you start seeing more and more of that change. Um, because there are more families in Hawaii, more Filipino families, um, you end up with more multiple generation um, families in Hawaii. Um, you start seeing local, local food more and more, including Filipino food, um, to the point that now like, I, it's hard to imagine um, local food without Filipino food, right? But that's something that was, it was sort of incorporated, it was slowly brought in, um, and it was it was sometimes begrudgingly accepted. Like there is a history of racism there um, where the Filipinos were treated very poorly. Um, but then you look at now, um, Filipinos are the largest single ethnic group in Hawaii and like an essential part of local identity, an essential part of politics. The first Filipino governor in the United States is of course from Hawaii. It's been Cayetano. Um, there are, there's continued migration alongside um, continued growth of the, the local Filipino population. So there's, you know, a lot of people that are still moving to Hawaii from the Philippines, um, following family here, or, you know, the, the big one, um, almost to the point of stereotype is nursing, but there is a large number of people who move to Hawaii um, from the Philippines for nursing. Um, and so there's this like continued growth of the Filipino population in Hawaii, um, where they were once seen as like mostly male workers, they're now an essential part of local identity um, and political and economic strength of the Filipino community in Hawaii. Okay, so the guy in the picture right there, um, if you don't know, that's Sheldon. Um, he was on Top Chef and like his, like, oh my God, his food is so good. Um, he has like restaurants on Maui, but one of them is just, it's like a takeout place down in Kahului and it's so freaking good. Um, and just the fact that like the, probably the best chef in Hawaii right now is a Filipino guy and a local Filipino guy. Um, and a, that a lot of his food is it's Filipino inspired local food. Um, it goes to show a lot about that, that shift, that change, um, where the Filipinos were once treated as part of, local but still seen mostly as like a migrant group um to today 
where there's kind of a, a much more sort of full um, acceptance as part of, of consistent local um, culture rather than a migratory group. So this is just the 2010 census stuff. I'm probably going to have to change this next year. Oh my God, I wonder if the census is still going to happen. Like, how do you go to door to door in the coronavirus? That's crazy. I wonder how they're going to do that. Okay, that's off topic. But the 2010 census, um, when you look at Hawaii, um, on, on the one hand, like, Asian is clearly the majority um, versus, you know, white or black or American Indian or Native Hawaiian. Um, what's interesting, too, is if you look at, at um, if you, especially down at the bottom where they include... Um, people of multiple, like people who mark down multiple ethnicities or multiple races, um, that there's so much, uh, so many people are, are multiple things or, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting looking at, at just how steady a lot of these demographics are, um, where the individual ethnicities kind of move and change, but the slow and steady growth of, of, a mixed population uh, that don't really conveniently fall into any of these categories and how um, essential that is to Hawaiian, Asian, or like Hawaii's Asian American experience um, and somewhat in opposition to the sort of broader Asian American experience. Um, so just look through those. Um, and remember, this is 10 years ago. Um, the new census should be coming out this year. So why does all of this matter? Um, one thing is, I mean, just again, just the numbers. While Hawaii is not a majority of, of the United States, um, Asian Hawaii is a, has been for a long time, and it's changing now, but had been a majority of Asian America. Um, so looking at the experience of Asian Americans in Hawaii does shift the Asian American story because you do have this situation where it... Asian American is not necessarily a minority in Hawaii um, because you do have so many people that are allowed to vote, um, so many people that are um, really essential to local politics, to shaping local culture, etc. Um, that that does change the Asian American story. Um, it also brings in the question of, is Asian America a meaningful identity in Hawaii? Um, does Asian American matter in Hawaii um, when you're thinking about Hawaii or does it, is it only significant when you're looking at Hawaii and the mainland or looking at individuals traveling to the mainland? Um, it also is really important to look at how that shapes the culture of Hawaii um, where um, because it is a majority Asian um, place, it's radically reshaped the culture of Hawaii um, in ways that again, kind of bring into question the Asian American story. The Asian American story is one of fitting into America, but what does it mean when you're fitting into a local culture that is already strongly influenced by other Asian um, peoples? What does it mean for a Vietnamese person moving to Hawaii when maybe there aren't a lot of Vietnamese there, but you're still in an Asian majority place? Um, how does that change that, that story? How does it change that experience? Um, and also what it means, what does Hawaii end up meaning for Asians, 
from from the continental U.S. Um, and this is something like, you know, you see this a lot where people um, will be from from California or like, you know, God forbid, they're from like Nebraska or something, um, where they're the only Asian family in town. And then coming to Hawaii and just this kind of total shock of no longer being the exception, no longer being the Asian person. Um, and what role Hawaii ends up playing in sort of continental Asian Americans' understanding of, of the Asian American experience. Um, places like San Francisco are also in, sort of significant to that, those questions. Um, but Hawaii in particular, because there is a majority Asian population here, how does that change um, things? How does that shift their thinking about the Asian American experience? Okay, so that's it for this week. Um, I guess we'll keep doing this. Let me know if this isn't working. I'll try and do videos. Look, honestly, I hate videos um, because I don't like looking at myself and I'll have to do that if I do a video. Um, it's bad enough I have to listen to my own damn voice. Um, but if this isn't working, we'll, we'll shift things around and go with it. Um, in the meantime, continue working on your... Um, your final papers and when I'm able to peel some time away from the children like I was able to do today um, I will be getting your um, your work back to you um, yeah stick it out hopefully you guys are able to to um, keep everything clean and wash hands but for those of you working in, in retail especially at, at grocery stores like hopefully you're able to stick it out man okay Good luck.